Welcome to part four of History's Does You multi-part series on the U.S.-China relationship. Today we'll be covering the leadership of Xi Jinping, as well as current issues such as COVID, Hong Kong, the upcoming Olympics, the treatment of Uyghur Muslims and genocide, as well as climate change. So we're covering a pretty wide array of topics. I thought it was important to kind of dedicate an episode to what are kind of the latest developments in terms of the U.S.-China relationship over. Both the last year and also under the leadership of Xi Jinping, who took over in 2013, and particularly with this interview with Dr. Economy, who I think, unlike some of the other scholars that we've interviewed, has done extensive fieldwork in China. So she brings, I think, a unique perspective as a political scientist and as someone who studies policy, both on the foreign and domestic side of things. So it's great insight, and she offers a wide variety of perspectives on, again, current issues, whether it's COVID, whether about vaccine diplomacy. Climate change, the Chinese economy, and kind of the other challenges the relationship between the U.S. and China faces. So it's a good episode. I don't want to go off too much because we'll cover these topics in depth in the interview. But I hope you enjoy the interview. She provides a lot of insight. It's super helpful and definitely provides perspective both on Xi Jinping as well as some of the challenges of the U.S.-China relationship right now. On today's episode, we are very lucky to welcome on Dr. Elizabeth Economy. She's a senior fellow at the Council on Foreign Relations and the Hoover Institute. She's written numerous books on China, including *The Third Revolution*, *Xi Jinping and the New Chinese State*. She's also the author of *By All Means Necessary: How China's Resource Quest Has Changed in the World* with Michael Levy, and *The River Runs Back: The Environmental Challenge to China's Future*. She's published articles in scholarly journals in foreign affairs, foreign policy, and the Harvard Business Review, as well as op-eds in the New York Times and Washington. And Post, among others. In June 2018, she was named one of the 10 names that matter on China policy by Political Magazine. So, welcome on. Thanks so much, Riley. Great to be here with you. And just to start, what is your favorite part of foreign policy research? And talk about why is your favorite, and how do you become interested in China and sort of the Asia Pacific region as a whole? Okay, we could spend our whole time together just talking about those, those questions. But let me say at the outset, I was trained at a time when. If you were going to study a country, and I started off studying actually the Soviet Union, and then later started studying China as well, did what was called then comparative communism. For people that were doing comparative politics, it was traditional that you would actually go spend time in the country, you would learn the language, and do sort of field research, interview people. It was kind of on the ground qualitative work, and that's what I've always loved the most—the opportunity to spend time in the countries that I'm studying and to get a sense for what people in different positions are thinking. About certain issues. So, for example, I started off. You mentioned my first book was "The River Runs Black," and that was about China's environment. And so, I spent a lot of time, you know, visiting different parts of China, interviewing people at different levels of the government. I interviewed people in the Environmental Protection Agency, people in the Ministry of Foreign Affairs, people that were dealing with what was then called the State Planning Commission. And then I also, you know, had the opportunity to engage with、uh, civil society actors because the environment was at the forefront of civil society. Development beginning in the mid 1990s, and so I met all of the original environmental activists in China. And so, for me to be engaged in that period of transformation within China, you know, sort of the nascent environmental movement, it was just really exciting. So. I've always enjoyed most,、uh, frankly, being on the ground and engaging with the people that are involved in making the decisions and making change. I think that, to me, has always been the most fun aspect of my research.、Mm-hmm. 
And just to follow up, what are some of the biggest challenges that you encountered? Is it kind of that on the ground field work or do you find it more challenging in the academic side of things? Can you kind of just give your perspective on that? Sure. I mean, I think studying China at this point in time is challenging. In part, it's always challenging because of the opacity of the system, because general government officials and oftentimes even my Chinese colleagues, people who are in the foreign policy sort of scholarly and analytical community, feel constrained in terms of what they can say, right? And things that we as Americans would feel very comfortable talking about on a daily basis, things that are going on in Washington, they don't feel comfortable. And so to some extent, getting at motives, getting at sort of the root causes of things, is challenging in China, sort of peeling back the curtain to understand what's driving policy is not simply a matter of opening a newspaper, right? It's not a democracy and and reading that this official is disagreeing with this official and here's what people are thinking and here's how policy evolved. So it's a little bit like being a forensic scientist and trying to piece together all the clues to come up with sort of your analysis of what's going on and, and why something is happening. Again, part of it is a lot of fun, certainly, Right now, because the relationship between the United States and China is so challenging, it is much more difficult. And I have many friends who actually don't want to go to China or won't go to China. Right now, I'm not going to China either because of the pandemic. But even if the pandemic were not happening, there are many people who wouldn't go. People are afraid. People are afraid that they could get arrested for no real reason. And so the political environment now, I would say, is the most challenging I've experienced. And I think that makes it very difficult to do this kind of research. Mm-hmm. And just the shift to the leadership of Xi Jinping, which you've written extensively about, can you just briefly talk about how he rose to his position and what some of his goals were when he took power? Sure. So you know, Xi Jinping was the son of a revolutionary leader. So he is technically termed a princeling because his father held actually a number of very senior positions in the early years of the Chinese government, actually, when it was first formed. And then all the way through uh, Deng Xiaoping, he was put in jail during the Cultural Revolution. This is his father was jailed during the Cultural Revolution and he had a difficult family life. Xi Jinping himself was sent down to a village where he had to live for, I guess, about five years, if I recall. And he applied to be a member of the Chinese Communist Party party something like 10 times because of sort of the black mark against his father politically. His father was known in his later years as a political reformer, somebody who was interested in having the Chinese political system be more open and was very supportive of some of the most politically reform-oriented leaders within the Chinese Communist Party. And that actually led a number of analysts here in the United States to think that Xi Jinping himself would be politically sort of reform-oriented. I have to say, I did not support that particular line of analysis because I looked back at his experience as he came up through the party and I didn't see any evidence of a leader who had been oriented that way. The most that I could discern and the most that I heard were basically two things. One, that he did have a strong commitment to anti-corruption, that he felt you know, that corruption, as he said when he first took power, if not addressed, could be the death of the Chinese Communist Party and even the death of the Chinese state. So I had a sense that that was something that was pretty deeply rooted in him. He didn't think that party officials should use their position for personal economic gain. 
And then the other thing is that he apparently would listen to many different sides of an argument, that he was open to listening. He wasn't known for anything. Again, as he came up through the party, and by the time he was made General Secretary of the Communist Party, selected in November of 2012, people barely knew anything about him, right? So even I happened to be with a large group of Chinese scholars in the Middle East, when the announcement came through about the new Standing Committee of the Politburo in 2012 and that Xi Jinping would be the general secretary. And I asked people, what do you think? And they didn't really have that much insight. I mean, that was shocking to me. These are people, senior scholars, and they didn't really have a great idea of who this guy was. The only thing they could say was that this looked like a pretty conservative lineup. So that's kind of his path up, he governed a number of the most um, economically sort of the fastest growing parts of the country, the coastal provinces. But again, he wasn't known for initiating any major economic reforms himself. And he was also put in charge of the Olympics, which of course was an enormous success. So that certainly redounded to him very positively politically. But I think we didn't get to know him pretty quickly. <laughs> I was going to say until he'd been in office for a while. But actually, I think within the first couple of months, we had a pretty good idea of what he was going to be all about. The anti-corruption came through very clearly. The crackdown on sort of political reform came through very quickly within the first, I would say, two months of his being in office. I would say that the only thing that remained a question in people's minds was whether or not he would be an economic reformer. And I think it took a little bit longer to resolve that. But generally speaking, he showed his hand pretty quickly after he came to power. Mm-hmm. And as you mentioned, kind of one of those unknowns was that economic aspect. But one of the big initiatives undertaken by China is the Belt and Road Initiative. Can you just briefly explain what that is and kind of the broader goal of the project was? Sure. So Xi Jinping announced what was then called One Belt, One Road. Now we kind of shorten it to the Belt and Road Initiative. One Belt, One Road in 2013 in the fall, first in the speech in uh, Astana in Kazakhstan, and then in a second one in Indonesia. And the idea was really to connect some of the lesser developed parts of China to external markets. So through hard infrastructure, railroads, ports, highways, and airports. So through the rest of Asia, Europe, Middle East, to Africa. And initially, there are about 60-odd countries that were involved. And there was an issue of overcapacity. That was another sort of motivating objective that the Chinese economy had become saturated with infrastructure projects and their companies, which were world leaders in construction, whether we're talking dams or ports or anything, needed a place to go. And so the Belt and Road provided a number of new markets uh, for these companies. So that's how it started. It has evolved and morphed into something much more extensive, much more expansive to include the Digital Silk Road, which is fiber optic cables and e-commerce and satellite systems. There's the Health Silk Road, which we saw really come to the fore during the pandemic, where China was sending its doctors out, traditional Chinese medicine, it was building hospitals. Now, of course, it has this enormous effort underway with vaccine diplomacy. Then there's an Arctic Silk Road that is supposed to connect China through to Europe more directly through the Arctic. So it's constantly sort of expanding to represent whatever new interests China might have on the global stage. I mean, fundamentally, I would say it has emerged as Xi Jinping's sort of flagship foreign policy initiative and a really important mechanism for China to embed its own security, economic and political interests within 
the sort of political systems of other countries. So in some countries, it's extremely significant. I would just finish by saying that over the past year or so, certainly there have been a lot of protests against Belt and Road projects in many countries because of the way that China does business. There's a lot of corruption. There's not a, you know, a lack of transparency in how the deals are structured. So if you happen to be doing a deal with a corrupt official in another country, the people in the country are kind of like, where's the benefit for us, right? China also tends to bring in its own labor, its own materials. And so again, many people feel as though there's not benefit to these large infrastructure projects. And we've seen in many instances where countries get new leaders, that there is a big reevaluation of Belt and Road projects that happens. And the new leaders will say, even leaders that are overall friendly to China will say, these projects make absolutely no sense. <laughs> They're way too expensive for us. And we're not going to proceed with them. So one of the recent sort of statistics that has come out is that about 60% of Belt and Road projects right now are under kind of threat. So we hear about this huge number of Belt and Road projects, especially in the hard infrastructure area, but it's important to look to see how many of those are actually realized because there is a lot of pushback against them. Mm -hmm. And just on the domestic side with China, under Xi's uh, leadership, has the Communist Chinese Party taken a more aggressive approach inserting itself into Chinese social life, such as the creation of a social credit system or more just observation of the population in general? Yeah, I think that is one of Xi's sort of signature elements of his domestic policy has been strengthening the Chinese Communist Party and its role within Chinese society and in the Chinese economy. I think for many of us who've studied Chinese domestic politics, it's been a really big surprise to see the extent to which he has been able to sort of roll back what we might call democratic gains. It's probably too strong a word, but at the very least, openness on the internet, a freer media. If you look back to 2009, 2010, and 11, before Xi Jinping came to power, you had a, an enormous amount of sort of open discourse on the internet in China. People calling for environmental change, people even calling for broader political reform with, for the most part, not that much fear of reprisal from the government. And of course, mass demonstrations on the streets. In 2010, which is the last year that we have a statistic, a professor at Peking University noted that there were 180,000 protests in China, right? So it was a very different political environment before Xi Jinping, but he has managed to constrain the internet, to reinsert the party. Of course, the massive surveillance system, right, with upwards of 200 million cameras capable of facial recognition, they want to have half a billion right, by the end of this year, so that really no part of the country, <laughs> right, is not under some government observation. And as you mentioned, the social credit system, which still being piloted, it's supposed to have rolled out actually by the end of 2020, but I think it didn't happen because of COVID. And I imagine they're going to try to roll it out fully in 2021, but it's a system that's basically designed to measure the political and economic trustworthiness of citizens and reward or punish them accordingly. And China has extended this to multinationals as well. So for multinationals that are operating in China, they also are now subject to responding to a set of actually as many as 300 different metrics that they'll be evaluated on to say, you know, are you a trustworthy partner? So I think the danger with something like this is that, of course, you never know how far it might go. 
right? And what becomes something for which you can be punished? You know, in one case, for example, it's not only whether you participate in a protest, right, that can cause you to get a black mark, but if a friend of yours does, you know, so it becomes such a coercive mechanism, potentially, this social credit system. At one point, they were talking about looking at whether a person is buying Chinese goods, right, as opposed to foreign goods, that this could be something that could be used. So, I mean, it really gives the government sort of this kind of unrestrained ability to try to mold an individual's set of choices. The range of choice could become so constricted. Many people will say that this kind of alarmist view that I am putting forward is, is that too alarmist? But I think we have to be attuned to the potential for it to move in this direction. Mm-hmm. And just to kind of follow up on that domestic side of things, do you think Xi has kind of used this idea of a Chinese dream in the way that the U.S. has using kind of the American dream and manifest destiny to kind of create this feeling of nationalism to kind of draw people in outside of maybe some of the more aggressive approaches the CCP has taken? I mean, I think there's no doubt that there is an enormous amount of national pride in China now. The way I look at it, though, is I distinguish between what's happening on the domestic front, where I think there is actually a fair amount of discontent and a fair amount of dissent. People in creative fields, people that do what I do, sort of in the policy analysis world, areas where their room, right, their space to think, to be creative, to offer dissenting views has really narrowed. That makes the work that you do much more difficult, right? It's not even just your daily life that you need to be careful, but now 24 seven, right? You are not free to be who you want to be and to say what you think. So I think there are a lot of areas of Chinese society that are unhappy with the direction that Xi Jinping has moved the country on the domestic front. I mean, look, you can see in the aftermath of the death of Dr. Li Wenliang, right? Who was one of the people who sounded the alarms around COVID-19 pandemic early on in China. He died in February. And in the aftermath of his death, there was that huge outburst, right, on the Chinese internet calling for freedom of speech. And so just because you can't see this on a daily basis in China, you know, I mentioned that opacity of the system doesn't mean it doesn't exist. So I think that's one level. On the other hand, I also think there is an enormous amount of national pride at how Xi Jinping has raised China's profile on the global stage the sort of competitive challenge that China now poses economically, militarily, China is a force to be reckoned with in a way that it has not been since preaching dynasty. So I think that that element of the Chinese dream, the great rejuvenation of the Chinese nation, is supported by a fairly broad spectrum of the Chinese citizenry. Mm-hmm. And just to cover some kind of ongoing current issues. Do you think COVID-19 has kind of undermined China's kind of mission or Xi Jinping's project to project influence across the globe because of the way they sort of tried to suppress the issue? I guess just really in general, how has COVID-19 affected China and really their goal to kind of be a global great power? So I think it's a complicated question in some ways. I think the narrative around China has shifted over time. Certainly in the beginning, China took a hit to its reputation. I think moving through much of the COVID-19 pandemic, China's wolf warrior diplomacy was viewed very negatively on the global stage. 
Now China is providing vaccines to tens of millions of people globally. So I think it's trying to recoup its image. And I imagine it's having some success. I think in countries that prize transparency, that prize basic democracy, I don't think that China's reputation is going to recover because it's providing vaccines. But I think in other parts of the world, China's ability to come through the pandemic to actually post a positive growth rate, I mean, small 2.3%, but still among the major economies, the only one that grew. And to have this vaccine diplomacy, I think, is a sign that there is something impressive about the China model. And I think that's the narrative that China is developing at home and selling it abroad. And I think there are parts of the international community that are buying that as well. So I think there continues to be, I think, differing opinions about China, the pandemic, how it's managed it. Again, the fact that it still isn't being transparent, it still isn't providing all the necessary data for the World Health Organization investigation is not going to earn it any friends, you know, among the major economies, certainly. But I just, I think the picture is mixed. Mm -hmm. And another issue, and actually a listener brought this up, are protests in Hong Kong that have been going on over the last couple of years. It's received widespread Western media coverage. Do you think the protests in Hong Kong have impacted the way in which kind of dissenting voices are being heard or treated either in China or outside of it? Look, I think what's happening in Hong Kong is just beyond tragic. I mean, I know a lot of democracy activists in the older generation down to the younger generation. And for me, it feels like they're being suffocated, right? It's just this oppression. It's difficult, I think, for us to imagine. It's basically people who have had freedom of speech, freedom of assembly, freedom of the press, and now they are experiencing that just being taken away on a daily basis, right? Universities, the judiciary, the legislature. I mean, it's extraordinary to see how this is happening. Um, I think Xi Jinping perceived Hong Kong as a threat, as a significant threat, in part because it called into question his very idea of a China model. And what you had, it was part of China, right? Still one country, two systems, but part of China basically saying, we don't want to be part of you, right? So here's China now. It's emerged on this global stage. It's selling itself as this model that other countries could follow if they want. And you have this significant group, right? And saying, we have no interest actually in following you. In fact, we'd like to move further away from you. So I think in addition to being extremely annoying right, and having millions of people protesting and being forced to face that on the television every day and to read about it every day, I think it also posed a real kind of almost existential threat to the notion of the China model and also to the idea that somehow the Chinese people are ill-suited to democracy right? Which you may not have heard that, but that's certainly something in my generation that China would often say, well, we don't have any tradition of democracy, so you shouldn't be expecting that from us. Well, here are 7 million people, not to mention all the Chinese who are also on Taiwan saying, actually, we're perfectly comfortable operating as a democracy. So I think for those reasons, Xi Jinping and the Chinese government felt very threatened by the voices in Hong Kong. 
Mm-hmm. And another ongoing issue has been the Chinese treatment of Muslim Uyghurs. Some have floated the idea of a boycott of the Olympics due to violation of human rights. Do you think this treatment will impact China's standing in the world in any way, or how do you think that is going to kind of that ongoing situation is going to impact uh, China? Look, I think both the detention of upwards of a million Uyghur Muslims in labor and re-education camps in Xinjiang, which independent groups have now termed genocide by a number of different official measures, and the way that Hong Kong has been handled, have had actually fairly significant impact on China globally. And I think I'll point to two, to sort of two ramifications. One is certainly Xi Jinping's personal standing on the global stage. So if you look at polls, whether it's in Southeast Asia or or in Europe, North America, wherever, even in Africa, where China has been so deeply embedded, you will find populations saying that they don't have any faith in Xi Jinping, right? They have very little trust in Xi Jinping. Levels of lack of trust that are 70, 80%, it's actually pretty extraordinary. So I think that's one way in which the way that he's managed these issues has affected him. I think the other is... When you look at what's gone on with Huawei and the decision by a number of countries, particularly in Europe, to prevent Huawei uh, 5G from technology, from being part of their sort of telecommunications infrastructure moving forward, it wasn't simply about the security issue related to 5G. You could see some countries believe that they could manage that. It was more about the entirety of Xi Jinping's China, right? About what kind of country, what kind of governance was he developing? And you could see that in Hong Kong. You could see that in Xinjiang. You could see it in these arbitrary arrests of foreigners, the Canadians, Michael Spavor, Michael Kovrig, Australians, the bullying and coercive behavior around the pandemic, the wolfware diplomacy that I mentioned earlier. All of these things have come together right, to inform um, publics and leaders across the world in ways that suggest this country, this leadership, right, cannot be trusted. So I do think that it's had a pretty significant impact on other aspects of Chinese foreign policy. And the Olympic boycott issue was gaining steam. I don't know where it's going to end, but it certainly, it hasn't started in the United States. I mean, the Australians, the Canadians, the UK, we're all having debates within their parliaments about this. And so I think there's a lot of pressure on Beijing. I don't think it's enough pressure to make them change their behavior. So we're going to have to figure out what we're going to do. And it could be, is anyone else going to step up to host the Olympics? I don't know, but maybe we do something else. Like we don't provide any positive publicity to China. That's my personal idea, because I'm reluctant to punish athletes who've trained their whole lives for this moment by saying you can't go just because the International Olympic Committee was so stupid as to grant the Olympics to China again. But in any case, I think it's going to be a big issue for the Biden administration. Mm -hmm. And just ask concluding questions and to follow up about the Biden administration, um, since you've written a ton about Xi Jinping, how do you think he will approach the Biden administration? Do you think it's going to be different from the Trump administration? Do you think they will try to work together to cool relations? How do you think that's going to go? I have to say, I was a little surprised that Xi Jinping, the Chinese government, didn't actually seem to make any concrete proposal, kind of opening gambit to improve relations. Instead, they announced the sanctioning of 
former officials from the Trump administration right in the middle of President Biden's inauguration. That did not set a good, good tone for the relationship moving forward. And despite the fact that a number of senior Chinese foreign policy officials have given big speeches on U.S.-China relations, there's almost nothing in them that says that China needs to do anything differently. Basically, they're all lists of what the United States needs to do differently, how the United States needs to take action to improve relations with China. So I think that President Xi Jinping would like the relationship to improve. They certainly would like the temperature to cool. But so far, it doesn't seem as though he's really willing to do anything to try to make that happen. So until we see some kind of concrete steps that could be around human rights, that would be a big one, right? It could be something having to do with the economy, maybe something to do with Taiwan stepping back from the brink, certainly the South China Sea. There are a number of hot button issues where China could kind of take some steps to try to lower the temperature. But if we don't see that, I don't think that there's going to be any significant improvement in relations. Um, and then just from like a U.S. perspective, as you mentioned, there hasn't been any offering or change. What are some policies you think the U.S. should focus on to at least ensure a peaceful coexistence with China, whether it's in the Asia-Pacific region or just in the world in general? I think, to be frank, the most important thing that the United States has to do is to advance U.S. interests. And that's U.S. interests in on the human rights front, it's U.S. interests economically, and it's U.S. interests in security. So in terms of improving relations with China, I personally favor trying to find some common ground on issues like climate change. That could mean, can we come up moving beyond carbon dioxide? Can we look at another greenhouse gas like methane to try to move forward in some new diplomatic negotiations? Can we develop carbon markets that are integrated in some way? There are things we can do to work on these global issues, and I think we should. But I don't truly, I don't believe that any of those kinds of moves will be enough to address the fundamental challenge that China poses to U.S. interests, because that's a challenge that deals with our allies in the Asia Pacific, right? Areas where China says this is our sovereign territory and we disagree. It deals with China wanting to push the U.S. out of East Asia as the preeminent power. It deals with China's export of its model, its political model globally. And it deals with China's actions in the United Nations, right? Trying to change the very basic definitions of human rights. So for me, I look at the fundamentals of sort of the Chinese system as Xi Jinping has developed it and his desire to promote it and what Chinese interests are and what U.S. interests are. And I would say I don't see an enormous amount of overlap. Again, that's not to say we can't find certain issues. Maybe we can get back to the table on North Korea, but I think we're in for a, a rocky ride moving forward. Mm -hmm. And just as a final question, how do you see the next decade of U.S.-China relations going? Do you think there's a serious chance of conflict, whether it's over Taiwan or any of the numerous issues we've discussed? I mean, I think it's possible. I certainly hope that's not what happens. If we can find a way to step back on the Taiwan front and on South China Sea, I think that would be great because I think those are the areas where we would be most likely to come to military conflict. And I think we want to avoid that at all costs. But do we want to avoid it from the perspective of the United States? Are we willing to sacrifice freedom of navigation? 
are we willing to sacrifice a nation of 21 million people living freely, been very close partner of the United States, you share our values, economically dynamic Taiwan? I personally don't think we should. So I think it's possible, but my hope is that we can find some new accommodation on those issues and that both sides will recognize, as we did pre-Xi Jinping, right, that we don't want to have that kind of conflict. We don't want to have a war in the Asia-Pacific. So hopefully we'll be able to avoid that. So I hope you enjoyed that interview with Dr. Economy. I think, again, it provides a lot of insight into kind of both the domestic problems China's facing as well as kind of the leadership aspect under Xi Jinping. And there's a lot of developments lately with the Biden administration, for example, Secretary Anthony Blinken, as well as National Security Advisor Jake Sullivan is going to be meeting Chinese representatives in Alaska. And that's going to be the first sort of dialogue between the Biden administration and the Trump, or not the Trump administration, in China. And by all accounts, the expectations are that, again, it's just going to be a broad dialogue. There's an expectations on cooling U.S.-China relations. And I think that's super telling because, again, I think both from a U.S. perspective and the Chinese perspective, this is a sort of competition, multi-year, multi-decade even relationship or a competition that's going to continue to go on. And one of the latest developments and something I've been really interested in is the talk of a boycott of the 2022 Olympics in Beijing. And I took a sports and international politics class. And one of the topics we did cover was the boycott, I believe it was the 1980 or 1982 Olympics, which was sort of started by the US and was pushed by NATO and a lot of Western countries to boycott the Olympics over the Soviet invasion of Afghanistan. And I think at the heart of that question is, is it sort of on the athletes to take the brunt of that, as kind of Dr. Economy mentioned, who have trained their entire lives for the Olympics and to sort of have it taken away from them because of politics. But the reality is that sort of intersection between politics and or geopolitics really in sport is always there. You know, another example and something I was also interested in is the NBA in China, which happened, I believe, in the fall of either 2019 or 2020. I'm sort of messing this up, but the general manager of the Houston Rockets had tweeted support for the Hong Kong protests. And on a dime, the Chinese government said that they would not broadcast Rockets games. They closed down the stores. And there was a lot of questions about how sport, such as the NBA, which has a massive following, it's the second largest outside the US in terms of viewership and people playing the game. How do you navigate the autocratic nature of the government? For example, the NHL even was sort of looking to do that. They had a couple of preseason games there, but they sort of backed off. And again, there's different sports such as football are trying to look at, because again, China with a billion people is a massive market potentially. But the biggest challenge is how do you navigate the both the autocratic nature of it and also a country that has violated human rights against the Uyghur Muslims in Western China? Again, those are all questions I think that are going to continue to evolve, especially as sport, both internationally with the Olympics and domestically with, again, like the NBA, NFL, NHL, any of those sports are trying to figure out how to get in and how to get out. And I think that's ultimately going to be defined by the US-China relationship, whether there's a cooling of relations, which will allow those sorts of things, whether, again, things continue to heat up and corporations kind of bear the brunt of that. 
again, that's something that I think will continue to be challenged. And I think the thing that I'm personally looking at is also, again, this idea of vaccine diplomacy. As Dr. Kung mentioned, China's sending out vaccines that they haven't really released data on. They're sending out doctors. And that's what some people call soft power or soft diplomacy, getting gaining influence. The big thing is I think the U.S. should be doing is trying, you know, we have three great vaccines with Moderna, Pfizer, and the recent Johnson & Johnson. There has to be, uh, hopefully, and I'm recording this on a Thursday, March 11th, and President Biden just gave a speech on having all Americans who want to be eligible by May 1st. So hopefully by the summer, a lot of those excess vaccines we can use whether it's in the Middle East or Africa or in Europe or in uh, Latin or South America, any places that are struggling, it's an opportunity um, not just to be an advocate for international health and also help stop the pandemic, but also, again, be a help for different countries. So I think that's kind of, in my mind, over the next kind of year and a half with the vaccines is kind of be the next front, I think, is this idea of vaccine diplomacy and international health and who can best navigate that. So it'll be interesting to see how some of these issues with both COVID, the Olympics, again, climate change play out over the next several months and years. So I hope you enjoyed the episode and the interview. I think, again, it provides great insights into Xi Jinping, as well as the most current issues between the U.S. and China. If you have reached this point in the podcast, you are at the end, and thank you for listening all the way through. As always, follow us on Spotify, subscribe on Apple Podcasts. You can also follow us on social media at History Does You on Instagram or Facebook to keep up with new episodes, giveaways, and the chance to ask questions of your own to our guests. If you listen to us on Apple Podcasts and enjoy what we do, please give us a review and share it with your friends. Thanks again.